1: Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Wine, coming January
2: 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi,
1: I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry, Your Angry Neighborhood, Neighborhood feminist. feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. It's weird. We're not doing the intro quote-unquote live anymore (laughs) because we're recording remotely and it's really, really difficult to sync up our audio. So we're pulling from other episodes. So if the sound seems weird or abrupt during our intro, that would be why that's happening. Uh, but and how are you doing?
2: Um, I'm doing really well. I had a bit of a rough day on Thursday, which I talked to you guys about, and then yesterday went really well, and it was a more chill work day, and now I have the weekend off, and I'm actually able to kind of like do the social distancing thing, and like yeah. the only thing that sucks is that we are now out of coffee and beer. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so we're like, okay, is there any liquor store that will give us coffee and beer. So I don't know. We're going to try to figure that out today. (laughs) There are a lot of like mom and pop bodegas that will Uh do that
1: or like that have both.
2: That's true. It just depends on if they're open. But anyways, yeah, that's how I'm doing. We're just playing some um, Donkey Kong races and um, I'm horrible. There was one game where I literally couldn't even get out of the start. I couldn't find the track.
1: I know what and, you mean. Everyone's like Mario Kart's so easy and I'm like first of all, <laughs> there are
2: some there are some that are really hard and I couldn't even get past start and I literally like started going backwards through the track and then I saw Max so I turned around and I'm like finished and then it was like game game over and I was like I did it. <laughs> I really have to look at those
1: things as just fun. Like I can't allow myself to get competitive because yeah. I'm so bad at it that I just have to kind of be like, eh, I'm just doing if, this
2: for fun. Yeah. If I am kind of good at something, then I'm competitive about it. Right. Like if I feel like I should be good at something or if I am kind of good at it, then I get competitive about it. But when Same. I'm something with video games, like I never had any video game systems except for this little SpongeBob game that had his nose as the joystick.
0: Mm-hmm. That's the
2: only video game I ever had growing up. I had a Game Boy couldn't figure out how to play the games. Like I was useless. So I don't expect greatness from myself when I'm playing these video games. So that's exactly what I do. I just have
1: fun. Yeah. Same. I do the same thing. Cause yeah, my brother was obsessed with video games. And so I went the other way, like on purpose. You were like, fuck
2: you. I don't even want to play video games.
1: Yeah. I totally missed out on all those skills because it is a skill to know like how to like use both your hands to push all the buttons and shit. Like I'm not coordinated at all in that way. Yeah.
2: Like, I'm I'm not good at all. How how are you doing, sweetheart?
1: I'm doing okay. Yeah. I'm doing all right. Same old same. I'm trying to make an effort to like digitally connect with people as much as possible, which is helping yeah. some. I, I bought some Jackbox games. So that's fun. Oh my
2: gosh. Those are the most fun. I used to do those all the time. Um, Yeah, we don't have an Xbox or any sort of gaming system like that. So you you don't need it. You you don't don't need it?
1: Yeah. So I had a a virtual game night last night with some of my friends. I bought Jackbox and you can get Stream on Uh your computer, which is what I did. I downloaded the Stream app and then, Uh or Steam app, sorry. (laughs) That's how little I know about this shit. Uh, I downloaded the Steam app. Then you can get the games in there. You buy the games. They go in there. Uh-huh. And then you can get on Zoom with your friends and share your screen. And then everybody can, like, sign in.
2: Oh, the, my gosh. Yeah. And so everybody can wanna play do together. I want to do that tonight. Yeah, I want to do that tonight. That's awesome. Some of them are free. That's such a good idea. On jackbox.tv. Yeah. So. That's awesome. Yeah, I actually did a video conference yesterday with a group of friends from back in Minnesota. And one of them I hadn't seen since I graduated, really. And um, it was really cool to see him. And just a lot of other friends are kind of coming in and out. And Max got involved and they never met him before. And we were like playing drinking games. and I think it's fun. A lot of people are doing that
1: now. Like a lot of people are reconnecting with people they haven't connected with or seen or talked to in years. It's a good
2: time to do that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, right. So this week was your suggestion. You really yeah. wanted to do this. And I actually think that this is something that we can continue to do mm-hmm. uh, more frequently on our show. And that is talking about teen feminists.
2: Yeah. Teen the feminist babes. Yeah. The young feminists of the world right now. And I am very happy that I get to go first. I just finished compiling all my notes together and I'm really uh, excited to uh, talk to you guys about this person. And Keegan, just so you know, my notes are on full screen so I can read them really well. I realized that my new glasses, they put the wrong prescription in them and that's why Mm. I'm still struggling with my sight. Oh no. Um, So I have my notes on like full screen. So I can't see you, but I can hear you. That's okay. And so I know if we- you
1: were concerned that uh, we were going to do the same person. So I'm really interested to see. I, I was concerned as well about that when yeah. you were like, I feel like I need more time to do my notes. I was like, oh no. Uh, so yeah. I changed my person yesterday.
2: (laughs) Oh my gosh. I feel so bad. I wish you didn't have to change your person. Well,
1: but I don't even know if I did have to change my person, but I just like preemptively did it. Uh, so, and it was, it's totally fine. I, I still have plenty of notes, so it's totally okay. But I am so like on the edge
2: of my seat to know who you're doing now. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I have to Google how to pronounce her last name again. It does it have, does it start with a Y?
1: Yes. Is it Yusuf Sai? Thank you, You Yusuf Sai. Yes, that's why I changed my person. Okay, good. (laughs) Because I knew we were going to do the same person. I felt it in my bones. I was like, we're going to do the same person. So I changed my my notes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I've gone down into this beautiful, like adventure of learning about Malala Yousafzai this week. I've been loving it. I've been able to talk to T about it, who I work with, and because it's Women's History Month, and it's like a kid who did something great, and uh, it could be inspiring for him, and she's so inspiring to me. So I am going to tell you her story. Do it. So Malala was born on July 12th, 1997 in Swat Valley, Pakistan, her father's name is Zayudin, and her mother is Torpekai. Their family is, I believe, Sunni Muslim is how you pronounce it. Malala was named after a character in a story of an Afghani girl who was killed for, for speaking out against injustice. And before I go too much further, I want to say that I got a lot of my information from a documentary called He Named Me Malala. It was so beautiful, and when they tell these stories about when um, Malala was named and a lot of other these, uh, of these events in this story. There's such beautiful animation when they tell these stories, and it's really cool, the story behind her name. Um, her family was very poor and couldn't afford to have Malala in a hospital. So with the help of neighbors, she was born at home. Malala and her father had an immediate connection. In the documentary, her father says, it was a kind of attachment from the first time I saw her. When she was born, her father received the drawn family tree with all of his male ancestors on it. When he realized that no women had been added, he drew an extra line under his name and added Malala to the tree. When she was young, she mostly she was mostly educated by her father, who ran a chain of public schools and was an advocate for education. She would toddle in a school and watch the teachers and students and even pretend to give lectures to empty classrooms. She loved everything about education. In the documentary, she says, school is my home. So she was raised by this man who was a school owner, an, education, an educator, and also a very big... Uh, activist for education. And when she was born, he knew that she was bound to be somebody great. And that's why he gave her this name. And that's why he added her to the family tree and really pushed her to have some sort of education. He really believed that she was someone that had a future. It was almost like a premonition in him.
1: Yeah. You know, though, for me, I'm like, yeah, that that's the response that you should have as a father towards your child. Like that's the mm-hmm. response that you should have. And it's extraordinary because it's not the response that I feel like culturally was acceptable in their culture uh, towards a daughter. It was not at all. But yeah, I mean like that's what you should feel when you when your daughter is born or your child is born, you should feel this immediate connection and and want to like include them in your yeah. life and want yeah. the best for them.
2: Yeah, and it didn't matter that she was a girl. It just mattered that that was his child. And he immediately felt that this was – because it was his daughter, you know, this child would be somebody great one day. And so he gave her a name that allowed her to be great.
1: It, he gave her a name that allowed her to be great, and he also gave her the space to allow her to be great and to grow, which I think mm-hmm. is something that is denied a lot. This is actually interesting because the person that I'm doing – They're going to juxtapose each other, uh, I think, pretty well. Uh, But, but yeah, I mean, like, you need to give a child
2: the… The encouragement.
1: uh, Yeah, and the ability to know that they can do amazing things. Yeah, Yeah,
2: definitely. Well, and she definitely wanted to do amazing things. When she was young, she really wanted to be a doctor, but her father urged her to be a politician. Uh, He would even allow her to stay up late and discuss politics with the family to kind of like nurture that activist spirit in her. He really wanted her to be a politician. So one of the big reasons why being an activist in Swat Valley, Pakistan was so important was because of, of course, the Taliban. The Taliban were everywhere in Swat Valley when Malala was growing up. And when the Taliban first came, the people of Swat thought that they were good people and they were here to bring peace. And there was this guy named Manula Fazula. And I kept spelling his name wrong. So I'm really sorry if I'm saying it wrong, but for some reason on all of my notes, it's showing up in different spellings. Um, But anyways, I'm going to call him Fazula. Anyways, I know that's correct, his last name. And he would get this radio broadcast that would be heard all throughout Swat Valley. And every day he would broadcast a sermon. And then by night, he would name the names of those that he felt betrayed the Taliban in some way. And they would be found and killed during the night. In the beginning, the Taliban actually made the SWAT women feel very important. He would even say, you know, okay, now it's time to speak to the women, you know, men go somewhere else. And he would speak to the women directly through this broadcast, and he really got the women of SWAT to trust him. And most of these women who lived in this area as well, you have to understand, were mostly illiterate, and they were kept very ignorant from the information of what was going on in the world and in their country and even in their own city. So... Because they were made to feel so important by this political leader, they didn't really realize what was going on around them. They were very, very swayed by this very charming and uh, apparently peaceful Fazula character. And also the only the other thing is that this was the only thing that they could listen to. They banned music and they banned televisions. And if they knew that you had a television, they would break in and steal the TV. So the only thing that you could do was listen to this one man over this one Broadcast, right? So, so, I mean,
1: it's a lot of like uh, domestic violence tactics, right? So it's yeah, like yeah. isolation, and then it's also this kind of like love bombing tactic of like making these women feel important and seen in the beginning. Yeah, you know, exactly.
2: It is. It is amazing the parallels between some of these uh, violent political groups. And uh, domestic violence and things like that. It's interesting how and cults even, you know, how they all can kind of parallel each other in some ways. Mm -hmm. So this is just kind of to give a bit of understanding to what her life was like when she was growing up in Swat Valley. Taliban had come in when she was very, very young. She was born in 97 and I believe Taliban came in in the middle of the 90s originally in Pakistan. So this was her reality growing up. Um, But she had this father who was obviously uh, a very outspoken man and did not agree with the Taliban. So Malala began speaking out about educational rights in 2008 when she was only 11 years old. Her father would take her to press clubs and let her speak. In a televised speech, she asked the people, how dare the Taliban take away my basic right to education? In 2009, she became a peer educator in the Institute for War and Peace Reporting's Open Minds Youth Program, very long title, uh, where she would work with schools in the region and guide young people through discussions on social issues through journalism, public debate, and dialogue. So 2009 was also a really big year because that was the year that BBC Urdu uh, wanted to publish a firsthand account of what it's like to be a female student under the Taliban's influence. Malala's dad was actually contacted to locate participants for this project, but that was really uh difficult because a lot of people were afraid of uh being attacked or being killed for speaking out against the taliban and writing about their daily lives even though this would be an anonymous journal Um, but malala's dad like i said really struggled to find anybody so he asked malala who was 11 years old at the time if she would be willing to do the project and she said yes so she was encouraged to use the pseudonym of Gulmakai, which means cornflower in Urdu. She would write down her daily thoughts and feelings, and she would call a writer from the BBC and report to them what she'd written. So I have a couple of blog posts written here just to kind of give you an idea of what her writing style is like and also give you a better idea of what uh, her life looked like when she was 11 years old in 2009. So her first blog was published on January 3rd, 2009. And it says, I had a terrible dream yesterday with military helicopters and the Taliban. I have had such dreams since the launch of the military operation in SWAT. I was afraid going to school because the Taliban had issued an edict banning all girls from attending schools. Only 11 students attended the class out of 27. The number decreased because of Taliban's edict. On my way from school to home, I heard a man saying, I will kill you. I hastened my pace. To my utter relief, he was talking on his mobile and must have been threatening someone else over the phone. When the Taliban came to SWAT, they banned women from going to the market and they banned shopping. By the way, no idea why I said mobile. Mobile. Well, because like I can't, I don't want to say mobile. He was talking on his mobile. So mobile just came out of my mouth.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't call cell phones mobiles. So I think yeah, that's why exactly. you said it like that. It, <laughs> we'll either say mobile phone or yeah, cell phone. Exactly. People who call cell phones mobiles pronounce it that way. So exactly. that's probably why you and said it came <laughs>
2: out and it just sounded like I was like silently judging myself in my head as I was doing the rest of that. Well, I know, but like, I was just a little bit like, oh, what the fuck? Um, so I have another, uh, another short, a blog post to read to you. I have two more short ones. This one's from January 14th, 2009. I was in a bad mood while going to school because winter vacations are starting from tomorrow. The principal announced the vacations, but did not mention the date that the school was going to reopen. The girls were not too excited about vacations because they knew if the Taliban implemented their edict, banning girls' education, they would not be able to come to school again. I am of the view that the school will one day reopen. But while while leaving, I looked at the buildings as if I would not come here again. By January 22nd, many of her friends fled from Swat Valley in fear. Schools were closed. Then the Taliban began destroying schools in the night and a child would wake up and their safe space that they would go to during the day was just gone. When the government military started to get involved, Malala and her family would stay with friends for safety during this time. There was a lot of attention on their family in particular because, like we know, both Uh, there's two members of the family that were badass activists. So let's talk a little bit more about her dad. Her father had been a public speaker since he was a child, but the thing is is that he had a stutter. But his father was this, uh, he would perform these sermons in town, and he admired his father's abilities. So because he had a stutter, he would practice and practice and practice and practice his speeches, and eventually the stutter went away when he was public speaking. But you see in the documentary when he's talking to the documentarian that he still has a stutter sometimes. But yet when he's speaking and he's being really passionate, that stutter goes away. Yeah. I've heard of that
1: happening, that that can happen sometimes.
2: Yeah. And it's almost like a miracle. It is. It's so cool. So, of course, he began publicly speaking out against the Taliban. Anyone who spoke out against the Taliban would be killed, and many of his his friends had died. Uh, Malala was actually really scared as a child. She would always check the gates at night since that's usually when the murders occurred. And he would speak out a lot about the educational rights for women. So they left and they were staying with their friends. And when their family returned to Swat Valley, they found it completely destroyed. And they're so in love with their home. Like when I was watching this documentary, every time they would talk of Swat Valley, it was like with this glint in their eyes and they admired where they're from so much and they love it so much that they just want to make it a better place. So for them to come home and see it destroyed was something that was really hard for them to handle. Uh, there was a short time, however, there where boys and girls were allowed to get an education at the same school, but not many attended. And the reason for this was because there was a peace deal that had been signed between the government military and the Taliban, which made some members of SWAT like, hopeful, but it didn't really last very long because they realized that nothing was really changing and things were still getting worse in the area. Um, By August 2009, the family again had to evacuate and stay with family friends. And during this time, Malala did this documentary with the New York Times where she came out as the author of these BBC blogs that had become so popular. And this documentary made her popularity soar even more, which helped Malala get involved with different organizations that helped young girls stay in school. And uh, she actually went on to win the first, uh, Pakistan's first National Youth Peace Prize in 2011. In her acceptance speech, she denounces being part of any sort of political party but hopes that one day she could start her own political party which would put focus on helping quote poor girls get an education. And by 2012, she was working on organizing the Malala Education Foundation. As her popularity grew more and more, so did the danger. Death threats began starting to get published, and they would be slipped under her doors. She would also receive threats on her very active Facebook page that she had. So all of this is coming out, and her popularity is mounting and mounting and mounting, especially in Pakistan. And eventually, a Taliban spokesperson said that they were forced to act, and they decided to kill Malala. They would later say that Malala was brainwashed by her father, and they said that they warned him several times to stop his daughter from using dirty language against us, but he didn't listen and forced us to take an extreme step. So they, uh, I mean, they would kill, you know, grown men left and right every night if they would come out against the Taliban. And just because this girl is so young, this was, let's see, 2012, um, She was just because she was young didn't mean that she wasn't a threat. She was getting everybody behind her and she was really becoming an idol in Pakistan and she was starting to get global attention. They had to put her they had to stop her.
1: We've talked about this so many times. Like there are forces who want to stop anyone from becoming a quote unquote savior figure, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody who's uniting the people is a threat.
2: You know what I mean? So Exactly. On October 9th, 2012, Malala was sitting next to her best friend Moniba on the bus on their way home from school. Their friends Shazia and Kainat were sitting in front of them. The attacker entered through the back of the bus and asked, who is Malala? Some of the girls on the bus looked toward Malala and she was shot. Moniba later told Malala that before she was shot, she was squeezing her hand. Malala says, the first shot went through my left eye socket and out under my left shoulder. I slumped forward onto Moniba, blood coming from my left ear. The next two bullets hit Shazia and Kainat. Two bullets hit Shazia, one on the left shoulder and another on the hand, and the bullet into her left shoulder went into Kainat. Before she was shot, she told a friend, don't worry, the Taliban have never come for a small girl. So this was obviously world news because everybody had known who Malala was and they were aware of what the, her dangers were living in Pakistan. And now three three or four girls, I believe, were injured in this attack. And Malala was actually in a coma because the bullet just barely missed her brain. Um, she had a lot of surgeries because uh, they had to cut part of her skull off because there was so much swelling in her brain. Uh, It it also caused her to be pretty much blind in one eye. Um, She has some sort of paralysis on one side of her face and she cannot hear out of one of her ears. And she spent three months in different hospitals getting various surgeries. And she eventually ended up in the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, which specializes in treatment of injured military personnel. Malala came out of her coma on October 17, 2012, and was told that she would make a full recovery with no brain damage. But of course, like I said, she had a lot of other surgeries to go through because of a lot of the other damage that uh, the bullets did. The attack on Malala was worldwide news, and she became a household name. We all waited with bated breath to see if she would survive. So the chief spokesperson for the Taliban in Pakistan was Aisan Ula Aysan, and he claimed responsibility for the attack at first. He said that if she survives and returns to Pakistan, she would be killed again. When asked about fearing for his family's life, Malala's father said, the Taliban cannot stop all independent voices through the tone of bullets. When Malala was in the hospital, she was visited by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, who launched a petition with the name I am Malala. The petition's goal was to have no child left out of school by 2015, and it included three demands. One was that we call on all Pakistan to agree to a plan to deliver education for every child. Two, we call on all countries to outlaw discrimination against girls. Three, we call on international organizations to ensure the world's 61 million out of school children are in education by the end of 2015. Later, so the attack terror- was the. Prime minister of what country? I I believe he was uh, the former prime minister of Pakistan. Oh, OK. Uh, it doesn't say because she was in England. So that's a really good question. But I think. It could have been the former prime minister of England. I'm really not sure. Gordon you, Brown. Well, let he- me look it up real quick. OK. Uh, England. England. Okay, great. So yeah, it was the former Prime Minister of England then, uh, who created this petition, and it went through. So... After all of that, there was attacker identified as Atta Allah Khan, and they would go on to arrest six others involved as well. But all of those were initially released because of lack of evidence. But in June 2018, sources confirmed that Mullah Fazula was killed by a U.S.-Afghan airstrike. He had been hiding in eastern Afghanistan since 2012 because he was afraid of being caught for um, initiating the attack against Malala. In April of 2015, 10 were arrested and sentenced for attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison with the chance of eligibility for parole and possible release after 25 years. I don't know the ages of these people, but I hope they're old enough that 25 years would make some sort of fucking difference. Um, It said that all of the others involved fled to Afghanistan. So... The thing I loved about this documentary that I watched, uh, he named me Malala, was that we get to see a lot of her life today and what she's doing in England and how she's furthering her activism. And the documentarian asks her if she's angry at all at her attackers for doing what they did. And she says, Islam teaches us humanity, equality, forgiveness. It doesn't matter to me if my left side of my face isn't working or if I cannot blink my eye properly. It doesn't matter for me if I can't smile properly. It doesn't matter that I'm not hearing in this ear. I can't hear. The director also asked Malala's father who the person was who tried to kill Malala, and he responded, it was not a person. It was an ideology. Then, when yeah, Malala was, Yeah, that's exactly asked, right.
1: I think, yeah. you know... it it becomes a difficult situation because obviously you don't, we can't have a lot of like sympathy or empathy for these people, but there is such a thing as being brainwashed by an ideology. And I did watch a uh, great documentary a few years ago. I wish I could remember what it was called, but it was basically how these people are radicalized. And it's essentially the same as being in a cult. There is a certain amount of brainwashing going on And there is a certain amount of desperation that causes people to want to participate in things like the Taliban. And so, of course, that doesn't excuse their actions. And, uh, you know, it's terrible. It's, of course, it's terrible. But I love that he made that kind of distinction that it's like, it's not the person necessarily that is to blame for this. It's an ideology that caused this situation to occur.
2: Exactly. And I think that that perspective, is really, is really interesting uh, to them because they so badly want to go back to Pakistan. They love Pakistan so much. And when they ask Malala what would happen if she went back today, she says, if I would go back, would I be shot? Of course I would be shot. And then she smiles and chuckles. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this girl, like she's like, just doesn't care. She's not scared of the danger. She's like, what, would I be shot? Of course I'd be shot. Um, yeah, so I, mean, they have I think to, there's
1: probably a healthy fear of the danger, but it's also like, oh, of course. Yeah. But it's also like this. This is just these are the facts.
2: You know, yeah, this is this is my this is my reality. Can you believe it? I think it was kind of like that. Like, can you believe this is like what I have to do? So they have to stay out of Pakistan until the Taliban ceases to exist. Basically, uh, they're still waiting the Pakistan is still waiting for Malala's return. Um, so Malala is more active than ever these days. Not only is she giving speeches at the UN, meeting with Barack Obama, and confronting him about his use of drone strikes in Pakistan, and donating $50,000 to the United States, Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees in the Near East she is also going to school full time and according to her she is having a really rough go of it she says that when she was back in Swat Valley she was like the smartest girl and she was like valedictorian and like everybody looked up to her but in England she wasn't the smartest student. Uh, She's even been given extra homework when she'd have to like miss a week of school for her travels to like go do a speech at the UN she'd be given like extra homework to well, like, she also has like extra grades
1: up challenges. I mean, she's studying yeah. in a second language in a culture that's not her own. Well, you know? she,
2: she did learn English at a very young age. She's fluent in three languages. She's fluent in Urdu, English, and something else. I can't yeah, but what it's it was. still not her native language. Like, even it's, if you Oh, it's totally true. A language yeah. at a young age, I
1: think probably studying in that language with native yeah. speakers uh, in a different
2: culture has got to be super challenging. Oh, yeah. I mean, the culture shock is crazy. Um, it's funny, in the documentary, they actually pull out some of her tests from school. And, and one of them, they got she got 73%, which I was like, what? Because she's so smart. And then on a physics test, she got 61%. And the documentarians were like, what? Like, how is that even possible? Because she's constantly reading like these super dense scientific books. Yeah. yeah,
1: but you could also be like really good at certain subjects and not great yeah. at other subjects. You know,
2: like well, it's I- interesting though with with physics because she loves. She was reading the theory of everything. I think in the documentary. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, come on, girl. But she, she works really hard that she can catch up with the other girls in her class. Um, but she's had a really hard time socially in England, too. Her classmates all wear shorter skirts, and they have makeup on, and they have boyfriends. And none of those things really interest Malala, except she loves uh, Google Imaging pictures of good-looking soccer players. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's There's still- a segment... A young woman, you know? She's like, yeah, she was 17 when this documentary was shot. And um, she was just, they were like teasing her about all the good looking like actors and soccer players in the world. And she was blushing and it was so funny. And they really go into, you know, what the culture of being Muslim is like and also kind of how it's changing and how they practice it differently in their family, but also how, you know, the mother is maybe a little bit more old school and is having a harder time adapting to Malala. Um, you know, really living a very different life. Like she encourages Malala not to look a man in the eyes and shake their hand. And Malala just said, well, if they're going to talk to me and shake my hand, then I'm going to do the same thing to them. You know, so there is a lot of a big culture change and they miss, they, I've said this so many times, but they missed their, their, their home so much. And they really feel like their work there isn't done. But the thing is, is that even to this day, the Taliban is stopping Malala's friends' cars and threatening them. So it's like it's still very active there that Malala is not safe. Um, in the documentary, they show Malala working with schoolgirls in Kenya. She start. I think it was like 200 girls in this school that she helped um, get an education. And then there's also a scene, a very beautiful touching scene where she is helping Syrian refugi- refugees cross the border. And she helped set them up with an education because on her 18th birthday, she opened a school in Lebanon near the Syrian border for refugees. It was funded by a nonprofit called the Malala Fund. and the biggest thing that I take away from this whole story is that Malala is can really be an inspiration to anyone, no matter how old or young you are or what your abilities are or what your strengths are. If you speak up about something that you feel is unjust and you speak loud enough and you work hard enough, no matter who you are, you can make some sort of difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's super inspiring. She is uh, a complete inspiration and also it also speaks to that idea of justice above all, like justice above my own safety, which I think yeah. is something that we talk about a lot on this show when we talk about feminist favorites mm-hmm. is it, it seems to be like a common theme uh, that kind of like goes throughout. Lo- lots of martyrs. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, you know. I feel like martyr. Some nowadays has like kind of a strange connotation to it because oh, of does what, it? what we started saying. Well, you know, it's like, oh,
2: you're such oh, a martyr. Like, or like whatever. such a martyr. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Not that that's I negative. See. Not that that's no, like negative. If you're, a, if you're a legitimate martyr.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, it's just, I think it's, more to me, it feels more like just being so justice oriented that you're just yeah. like, I'm like, it, this isn't fair. This is unjust. And yeah. that's just, it, it's black and white. It's a black and white issue.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's like, I don't have any other choice. I have to put myself on the line if this is something that I believe in enough. And, you know, I think she was really comforted in doing that by her father who, you know, had lived that way for so long, you know, he would keep a very sporadic schedule so that he would kind of keep them on their toes. And, you know, he was very encouraged by her father. So yeah, and supported, you know, I'm I'm sure that made her feel very safe. Yes, absolutely.
1: It helps when you have people in your corner.
2: Yeah, you know? definitely. Oh, and her friends are awesome too. I love in the documentary watching them, um, like play together and hang out. And then she's like doing card games, like magic tricks. Yeah, and she's like really good at it. And it's it's the girls that were on the bus with her when she was attacked and. Um, Highly recommend that movie. I'm really glad that you
1: did Malala. I, I had a Yay. feeling as soon as you were like, "I need more time for this person." I was like, "I have a feeling. I know who you're gonna do."
2: <laughs> yeah. How far? I feel really bad though.
1: How far did you get into your I, research? I wasn't that far in. Like, I okay. read like several articles. I had started compiling my notes, but it's not a big deal at all. Like, okay. not at all. And I'm actually okay. glad that I let you do that one, uh, so that I could do this one because I think that <gasps> this one is. Uh, far lesser known person. And also she's, I know we said teenagers, but she wasn't even a teenager. (laughs) It was like before she was a teenager. So um, I'm going to talk to you today about uh, Najood Ali. So (gasps) Najood was likely born in 1998, but Her exact birthday is unknown, which seems so weird for someone born in 1998 that we're like, oh. Yeah, that is a
2: very bizarre statement to make.
1: Yeah, we're not exactly sure when her birthday was. Uh, But she was – it might be because she was one of 16 kids. She was one of 16 children. Oh, my gosh. And um, her family was really impoverished in Yemen. Uh, So when she was about 8 or 9 and in the second grade – her father oh married her off to Faya's Ali uh. Thamer, who was a delivery driver in his 30s. So you can watch- you, dad. Yes. Um, th- which is why I was saying this is kind of like the opposite of yeah. your story in a lot of ways. Totally. Um, and in a lot of ways, I'm so sorry, it's going to be less heartwarming, but I still think <laughs> it's an important thing to kind of talk about. Of so, course. You can watch a uh, 2013 YouTube video documentary type thing uh, that's called Child Marriage and Rape is Still Legal in Yemen. And they interview uh, Nujud as well as her family, including her father. And he explains that his motives for marrying his daughter off at that age was uh, poverty. He was like, well, Mm. we didn't have any money. Yeah. We were able to get a dowry for her. So there's that. She, he basically yeah. sold her. Uh, and then in oh, addition... so sad. Yeah. In addition, it was one less mouth to feed. So they interview yeah. her mom as well. And her mom is like... You can tell she didn't like the circumstance, the situation. Uh, yeah. But she was like, we we didn't have money to feed our kids. So like
2: 16 children. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of money to feed your kids. Like, right. Obviously that's horrible circumstances and I'm completely against it and judging that dad hardcore. But at the same time, it's like when you're pushed up against a wall, it's, you know, sometimes people make really bad choices.
1: Right. I mean, and it was
2: also fairly common practice in Yemen
1: uh, at this time. So Mm -hmm. uh, she was probably around nine, but even she isn't sure if she was eight or nine
0: uh, whenever
1: she was married. So you can also hear Najud talk firsthand about what her wedding day was like for her and what oh ensued afterwards. And, and she's in this documentary, she's probably, I don't know, like a, 12, maybe like 11 or 12. She's still really, really young. Like in oh this honey. And it's like a 15 minute, uh, like quick documentary, uh, short yeah. form kind of documentary. But oh, cool it's interesting to see what wedding ceremonies are like. And I think it really speaks to the culture and kind of the dismissal of women because Mm -hmm. these marriage ceremonies are focused completely on the groom. Like, so there's a, like, a throne essentially that the groom sits on and then there are no women who participate in the marriage ceremony at all like it's all men what? yeah it's all men celebrating drinking playing music and then especially if it's a child bride they put the child bride away like they hide her away
2: in another room so she talks oh, so about- it's like a it's like a bachelor party but one yes. of them is getting married. Yes. Oh. Great. Sounds like a really good time.
1: Yeah. So she talks about being able to hear the celebrations, but she was in another room like crying like this is a second grader.
2: Oh, my gosh. Okay. I have a really quick question. Does she have a memoir or an autobiography?
1: Yes, we'll get to that.
2: (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. I didn't want to skip ahead, but I'm like, oh, my God, I want to I want to know. I know you were going to move on. I'm like, I need to know even more about this. Um Someone going to look that up. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no problem. So she
1: talks about being uh like locked in the other room being able to hear what's going on and she's just right. in there crying because she doesn't really have a full understanding of what's happening. Uh yeah. so after the wedding ceremony she is just like I want to go home. Uh why can't I just go home? And they're telling her like you can't go home. You're married now. Like this is yeah. your life now. And She also talks about – and I'm going to give a quick trigger warning right here because this is terrible and Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to trigger anybody, any of our listeners. But she goes on to describe – and it's, again, really strange to watch because you're watching a 12-year-old talk about how she was raped, basically, like the night of her wedding – Uh, she was left alone in a room with her new husband, who again was in his thirties and his mother and his sister. And when they ask her and she says like, he assaulted me. Yeah. He means like he raped me. And when they ask if the mother was still in the room, she said, yes, she was holding me down. (gasps) So her new mother-in-law was holding her down. And, you know, of course she's, screaming in this situation. She just wants to go home. She doesn't have a full understanding of what's happening. So under Sharia law in Yemen, there is no age limit for marriage. So it was pretty fairly common practice to marry off daughters at a very young age. However, um, it is illegal to engage in intercourse with somebody under the age of 15. Interesting. Interesting there was a little bit in a lot of the articles that I was reading. There was some, I don't know if it's conflicting or if it was more like a, they do it kind of like case by case. Uh-huh. Uh, but either way, it was usually you are not, even if you marry a child as young as like eight or nine, you're not to engage in sexual intercourse with them until they've gone through puberty, typically. Right. And so when Najud's father married her off, he says that it was with the understanding that Najud's new husband would not have intercourse with her until either a year after the marriage which is what he said in this interview which would have still put Najud at like 10 or right. or a year after her first
2: menstrual cycle which is something that I saw in a lot of articles it's just so like that that's just so gross to me that a father would say you're allowed to sleep with my daughter uh, once she has her first period, like there's something to me that's just so archaic and disgusting about this, and well, the fact yes. that this happened in what was it? This she was born in ninety eight, ninety seven.
1: Uh, She was born in ninety eight. She's born in ninety
2: eight. So this is in the two thousands. Like this isn't that long ago, and this just sounds so archaic and disgusting. So they got
1: married in like two thousand seven, I think. Yeah, yeah, Uh, yeah. No, it's it's incredibly archaic. Like she was sold. Like her dad sold her to uh, in order to like make money to feed their family. Yeah. And
2: the conditions and the conditions are absolutely disgusting when he says, oh yeah, you can sleep with my daughter. You can rape my daughter, but wait till she's 10 or wait until she has her first menstrual period. Well, also those could be two very different things as well. He's of course going to choose, oh, I'll only have to wait a year. I'll wait till she's 10. Right.
1: Which is why I don't, I don't know exactly. I don't understand if there was like a lost in
2: translation thing with her dad. But they both, They both suck, and it's gross. No father should ever say, you can have my daughter once she has her first menstruation. That's disgusting. That made me feel really gross.
1: Yeah. So in the months after her marriage, Najud's husband raped and beat her often, and she received no sympathy from her new mother-in-law. In In fact, Najud says that often uh, her mother-in-law would tell her son to beat her even harder. So she had no one to turn to. Her education was stopped uh, because it wasn't deemed appropriate for a wife to be a student. So after the second grade, they pulled her out of school.
2: Oh Um, my gosh.
1: Yeah. So she tried turning to her family. And her mother, again, like you could tell, wanted to be able to help her, but still, one, she couldn't. Like women just didn't have that kind of. Power. Yeah. What in, is she supposed to do? Right. In in a, in the family, and then also she said, "I still felt like being married was the best thing for her because you're talking about there's so many com- compounding issues happening here, and these people are impoverished. So in mm-hmm. in her mother's mind, I think she was kind of like, well, at least you're being taken care of, like yeah, better like than you meat. have
2: food in your stomach, and- yeah."
1: Better than we could Oy. take care of you, so Oy. she she tried turning to her father and to her uncles, both on her mother and father's side, but nobody would help her, and they told her that she belonged to her husband now, and she needed to do her duty as his wife. So basically, she well, just yeah, and she
2: was physically sold.
1: Yeah, she wasn't their problem anymore. So Najud had picked up from her aunt – that's in quotes because she called her her aunt, but it was actually her father's second wife. Like, her father had a a couple of wives. Oh, Uh, I see. And her aunt was basically the only person who was like, listen, judges can grant divorces – If you like, like maybe you should try and like get a divorce, which was extreme in itself. Like it's surprising that this woman even said that to her. Like, yeah. So on April 2nd, 2008, so after about a year of marriage um, at the age of 10 years old, she was married for a year at 10. Oh, my God. So she waited for her husband uh, to fall asleep or at a time whenever he wasn't paying attention, and she made her escape. So it was highly unusual for women to go out alone in Yemen at this time wow. period, uh, let alone a child. So she was able to hail a taxi. And when uh, she asked – when they asked where she wanted to go, she said to the court. And so she's 10 years Uh old. So she doesn't have any – all she heard from her father's wife was go to the court, find a judge. So she has no knowledge of, like, anything else. She's like, I just
2: got to find a judge.
1: Right, exactly. So uh, the taxi driver's like, which court? Like, where do you want to go? And she's like, I don't know, any court. So he drives her to a courthouse. She gets out. She finds somebody and uh, she's she asks to see a judge. And they're like, well, there are many judges. Which one do you want to see? And she's like, just take me to a judge. It doesn't matter which one. Yeah. So she waited in the courthouse for half a day before <gasps> they finally took her to Judge Mohammed Al-Gadha. And she told him that she wanted a divorce. Like she walked in, she's 10 years old. She walks in and she's like, I want a divorce. I don't know I how see, to like do
2: this. I want to see a cartoon animated version of that, of a 10 yeah. year old girl walking in being like, look, man, I want a divorce. I've had yeah. enough of this shit.
1: Yeah. So many other judges would have regarded Najud as a runaway and sent her back to her husband. But this judge listened to her story. And oh when gosh. she described what happened to her she, I can't remember the phrasing that she actually used, but she, it's so weird watching her because in so many ways she looks like a little adult, yeah. but she's also still a child and you have to kind of remember that because she describes it to him, like what happened to her. She's like something black happened, like rather than saying like oh. sex, like rape. Yeah. Um. But he knew what she meant. And yeah. because of the law there where... He he talks about it as though the husband engaged in intercourse with her because yeah. marital rape is wasn't illegal doesn't either. Exist. Yeah. yeah. It it wasn't illegal. But there were those laws that were basically like you can't engage in intercourse with either somebody under 15 or uh some other kind of like agreed upon puberty age.
2: Right. Uh, okay. So so just because the dad agrees doesn't mean that he can do that by the eyes of the law.
1: By the eyes of the law, and even then, it seems like the dad didn't agree to it either necessarily. Like there had to have been an agreed upon. Well, she she just turned 10. Yeah. like, Or I think technically like he should have waited until she had gone through puberty. I think that that was kind of the uh, agreed upon thing. 15 or having gone through puberty, whichever comes first, is kind of the idea that I'm getting here. Got it, got it, got it. So he did grant her a divorce hearing, which was very surprising uh, at oh this time. Oh, my gosh. And so, scary. Yeah. Yeah. She's all alone. Like, that's the thing is she went in without any support from anyone. That's Mm-mm. why it's kind of the opposite of Malala, right? It's like she she did it on her own. Yeah. Uh, so Shada Nasser uh, agreed to defend Najud. So Nasser was a... Um, she had opened her law practice in the 1990s as the first Yemeni law office headed by a woman and wow. she built her clientele by offering services to female prisoners so uh, she took on her case pro bono once she wow. figured out what was happening she's like i'll represent you so right. you got these two like badass ladies basically yeah like.
2: this little 10-year-old and this lawyer who mm-hmm. wants to make a difference in the world i love it
1: yes yeah so, um, yeah. Okay. So here's, here's what I had found. So Yemeni law at the time set the minimum age for marriage at 15, but families had been allowed to marry off younger girls by stipulating in the marriage contract that sex with these young brides is forbidden until an undefined time when they are considered quote unquote ready. I don't know okay. what that means, but uh, I, mean, I think I could probably guess. Yes. Uh, I'm guessing it means puberty, but
2: yeah, ready to be able to like bear children, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. So in court, Nasser argued that Najud's marriage violated that law, and Najud rejected the judge's proposal. So the judge was like, "Hey, how about you just take a break from living with your husband for like 3 to 5 years, wait till you're a little older, um 13 to 15." Wait until Oh god. You're, Thirteen to fifteen, uh, and then go back and live with your husband after that period of time. Nuh-uh. And Little ten-year-old Najud said, "I hate this man and I hate this marriage. Let me live my life and go to school." <laughs> oh, like my God, no gosh! I love her. I know. So in a historic verdict on April 15th, 2008, the court granted her a divorce. And at the age of 10, Najud became the youngest known divorcee in the world.
2: Oh, my God.
1: (laughs) So after her divorce, Najud became a media sensation in Yemen. She moved back in with her family and returned to school with the hopes of becoming a lawyer.
2: So, the family was like welcoming to have her home. Um, they, they did want her out.
1: not of the marriage really. I mean, her brothers and her father, like basically the male relatives in her family kind of chastised her for bringing shame, dishonor, like yeah. upon the family okay. for having done right. this. So I mean, it wasn't all roses and sunshine, but it was better okay. than being where she was. Yeah. exactly. So the case garnered worldwide attention, bringing the issue of child marriage to the forefront, and it inspired other people, including an eight-year-old Saudi girl who had been married to a man in his 50s whose father married her off for (gasps) $13,000. to seek annulments and divorces. So Mm-mm. a lot of other people kind of followed in her footsteps. Uh, once they saw like that this had happened, they were like, oh, there's a recourse for us. If, uh-huh. if we don't want to be married, we can find a way to get out of it. Or like it gave a lot uh-huh. of, it inspired a lot of other people.
2: Wow. Her case
1: even sparked parliament in Yemen to try and pass legislation that made 17 the minimum age for marriage, but it was blocked by the opposition party, which was Yemen's Muslim Brotherhood. Um, mm. And the leaders of this opposition party hold the belief that there's nothing wrong with char- child marriage because the Quran doesn't stipulate an age for marriage. So oh. they're like, there's nothing wrong. They're, like, In fact, they interview a guy and he's like, I don't understand why you guys are making a problem out of nothing. Like, It's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, that didn't pass. But it It had did cause like forward movement like or a yeah. discussion where there previously wasn't one, so uh, Najude ended up coming to the United States and was honored in two thousand eight as one of Glamour magazine's Women of the Year at ten wow. years old, and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton actually described her, who was then in third Najude, who was then in third grade as one of the greatest women I have ever seen.
2: Wow.
1: In 2009, with the help of an adult ghostwriter, Najoud penned her memoir, I Am Najude, Age 10 and Divorced. Her memoir spent five weeks as the number one bestseller in France, and it was published in 18 other languages, including her native language of Arabic, which was the thing that she was most excited about when she was interviewed. She's like, I don't really care about the other languages or the other releases, but I'm really excited that it's being published in Arabic for other people in my country and other countries uh, to, you know, read. To know the story. Yeah. Yeah. So royalties from international sales of the book were intended to pay for her schooling, but her father prevented her from attending school regularly and oh. um, because of negative world press coverage about Yemen, the Yemeni government confiscated Najud's passport in March of 2009, and so she was prevented from attending the ceremonies for the world's or uh, the women's World Award in Vienna, Austria. In I know it's not it's it's kind of sad. Uh, the rest of this is kind of sad, but. In 2010, uh, Najud's family was living in a new two story residence bought with the help of her French publisher, and they were running a grocery store on the bottom floor. So she was able to help pull her family kind of like out of poverty, which is when a lot of her brothers started changing their tune about her being a disgrace. They were like, oh, it's actually fine.
2: Never mind. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Yes.
1: And at the time, she and her younger sister were attending school, but the publishers were not able to pay. Uh, Najud directly under Yemeni law. So Mm -hmm. they gave $1,000 a month to her father until she was 18 to provide for her and her education. Oh, wow. And though, so in the interview that I watched, Najud's father appeared to take some responsibility for his part in Najud's marriage and abuse. And he vowed not to marry any of his other daughters into child marriage. Like, so they interview her sister, her younger sister, and yeah. she doesn't seem to buy it. She's like, I'm still scared that I'm going to end up being married off. Even though he says he won't do it, I'm still worried yeah. that he will. And yeah, in sense. 2013, Najud reported to the media that her father had forced her out of the house and withheld almost all of the money that she had been paid by publishers. He used the money earmarked for her education to buy two new wives for himself and according to haretz.com, he sold Najud's younger sister Haifa into marriage with a much older man. So she, the thing she had been worried about, that he would do that,
2: he did. Fuck this father, seriously. Yeah. In June
1: of 2015, at the age of 16, Najud officially changed her name from Najud, which means hidden, to Nojum, which means stars in the sky. Oh, and not much is really known about New Jude's life at present, but it's said that she did end up remarrying at some point and now
2: has two daughters. So I hope it's a happy marriage. What do you think it is?
1: I hope it is, too. Um, if you watch that interview or which I'll link in the show notes, she when they asked her at the time, like again, when she was probably like 12, they were like, do you ever want to get remarried? She's like, no, never. Like that idea is erased from my yeah. mind. I don't ever want to get remarried. But it's possible that she changed her mind at some yeah, point. It does sound like she is fairly strong willed. So yeah. I would hope that if she were to enter into marriage again, that it would be her choice. Yeah. Uh, and that she's happy. But I tried Googling for, like, recent interviews with her, and there's really not any
2: um, wow. so that she's I really could find. S- she stayed out of the public eye quite a bit then.
1: Yeah, so I don't really know what happened. I don't know if she ever got her passport back, if she can leave Yemen or not. Uh, it's unclear to me. But even though it has kind of a sad ending-ish, Uh, I don't know, maybe, because we can't really find anything about her. Yeah. Uh, Even though it's not like the the happiest ending in the world, it's still amazing that she was able to do this and she was able to bring this very important issue of child marriage to the forefront of
2: um, our consciousness, you know? It's absolutely amazing. It's such a stunning story. And as you were telling it, I was kind of remembering some of this, like from in the news and things like that. And, um, it's just, it's an incredible story. And I, I would love to learn more about that as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would encourage you to, uh, like Google interviews with her because it is kind of fascinating to watch this person who you can tell has lived life, but is still very clearly a child, you know, and they, they behave like a child. Like they're not, it, it's it's very strange to see, but also like very inspiring. Um yeah. Yeah. It's incredibly I hope she's inspiring. Happy.
2: Yeah. I love that both of these girls are working to make, you know, other young girls' lives better. And because, safer. Yeah. Yeah. And safer because education and safety from, you know, child marriage is something that is so important to so many countries all around the world. It's something that we don't really think about in the United States as much, but it's really important to have that be at the forefront.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, to kind of like interlink our stories together, it's kind of interesting to see the way in which like child marriage can stop your education, like completely. Yeah. Like they pull you out of school. And they're like, you don't need any further education. And again, it's such a tactic to abuse isolate keep this population uneducated uh yeah so that they can't like rise up or fuck with the status quo exactly you know yeah
2: yeah fuck the status quo
1: <laughs> but it's amazing i like that we did this and we can kind of like look at what young people are capable of uh exactly it's exactly. amazing
2: yeah i'm i'm very excited to learn more about your wonderful girl and i'm excited to read i am malala that i ordered today and yeah it's great it's a great way to kind of end up women's history month it was really hard to get through and last week you know we kind of took a break from women's history but i'm glad that we created some sort of normalcy in this time by doing our women's history episodes and ending it in such a classic way that we do yeah me too yay Oh, all right, you guys. Well, if um, I would love to do something like this again, if there's any other teens that you would like for us to talk about or kids that are, you know, activists and feminists that you'd like for us to talk about, go ahead and email those. Um, also, we really want to hear how you're coping through this time. We did get a message already. We want to keep getting more and more. And on our mini episode, we will share how we are surviving and thriving during this time. Go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us at Angry Neighborhood Feminist on Instagram. We have a Twitter at YAMF Podcast, Y A N F podcast (laughs) that one's hard to do um let's see we have a facebook business and group page you can rate and review us on our business page and chat with the other listeners on our group page you can also rate and review us on apple Podcasts. we really 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 appreciate it so much um and you have nothing but time now so you don't have any excuse if you haven't done it also if you don't already go ahead and listen to us on radio public it is a free way for you to listen and it helps us out just a little bit All right, that's everything that we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye.
1: Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby
0: Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut.